0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to be one of the pastors at Bethel. And I get to be the one to uh, let you know uh, sort of uh, formally and excitedly about a wonderful new thing that's going on in the life of our church. I'll be uh, hopefully somewhat brief on this, but it's a really significant thing. I've always been really thankful for Bethel uh, for a number of things, but in particular that Bethel has always had a vision for what we believe God is leading this church to be. it's From the very beginning of our, of our founding, some, uh, gosh, over 30 years ago, 37 years ago, uh, the elders and the, and the leaders of this church always had an idea and a vision of where we believed God was leading us. And it was always to be a church of influence in East Texas. Not a single megachurch, as it were, but a church of, of great influence for God's kingdom in East Texas. And so Bethel has always been committed to strategically pursuing that vision Implementing steps to that vision, not programs around it. So we've uh, experienced some really great high points very recently. Uh, About eight years ago, if you recall, two churches actually merged, and that gave way to the uh, foundation of this downtown campus. About four and a half years ago, we planted our White House campus. Which has been going great and growing steadily, and they've just gone to two services as well. So we're super thankful for what God is doing in the life of this church and our people. And now we come to an opportunity to expand yet one more time. Many of you probably received an email from our senior pastor, Ross Trader, this week, explaining that we are on the cusp of launching a fourth campus. Now, the way Bethel's always done that is we've sort of waited for God to bring us someone who was passionate who was a leader in a certain way, and then we just get on board with what God's doing in that person, with what is God doing in our community, in our region. And we have found that person. God has brought us a gentleman, a good friend, a strong, strong believer. I've been able to to know Ricky Garner for several years now. He's spoken here a time or three, and we just love Ricky. And as Ricky began to share his vision for what he thought God was leading him to do to plant a new church, it became completely apparent that God was wanting us to do that with him. And it was one of those deals where Ricky said, hey, I'm going to do this, I'm going to plant this church. start off, it's going to be a multicultural, multi-ethnic church beginning in North Tyler. And we said, man, we have that heart, we have that burden as well. We, candidly, don't really know how to do it. And Ricky said, well, I'm going to do it. I hope you can come with me. And so we said, yes, please. And so last Tuesday, January 8th, our elders, our trusty elders, voted unanimously to bring Ricky Garner on as our next campus pastor. And what that means for us, very exciting, is for the next three Sundays here, Ricky and the people that he's pastoring will be with us in the first service just to sort of get a feel for who we are as Bethel, how we do church, what it's like to sort of be acclimated to this is what we believe and to see how we do church, to meet a lot of our folks and so that we get a chance to meet them as well. So I'm super excited for what this place is going to look like over the next three weeks. You'll have a chance to meet these folks as well. They'll be with us in the first service. Then during the second service, they'll be on the first floor in the large room, sort of casting vision, laying out their plans logistically of where they're going to be meeting initially in the Boys and Girls Club of East Texas up off of uh, North Broadway. And listen, I don't, love this but i love this as a pastor i know that very likely some of you will feel god's call to go and be a part of that work and that ministry and i certainly don't want to lose you but i am delighted to send you off if that's where god is leading you so you'll get to see all that sort of transpire we'll be sending out more information there'll be some videos we'll be showing want to make sure everybody is fully up to speed on this and excited about it and we're uh, we're asking everyone to join us in praying to this end We've been praying about this fervently now for many, many, many months. We certainly do not want to get out ahead of God. We don't want to, str- don't want to straddle b- behind and get behind the Lord. So we're asking you to join us in prayer. And if any of you say, man, I, I have some questions or I have some, some things I don't understand, by all means, talk to me, talk to our staff, talk to our elders. But we really do believe that God is doing a cool thing in these Texas, the likes of which we would never have been able to plan on our own. And we're humbled that we, Bethel, get to be a part of this. It's the stuff we've dreamed of for years, and now God, by His grace, is doing it. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and then we will continue together to worship by studying His Word. So let's pray. Father, You are a good, great God, and You love us. And You have great things in store for us, for our good and for Your glory. And so we trust You. Some ways, sometimes we can't see where you're going, what you're doing, but we know that you're good and that you have never once, ever, in the history of humankind led us astray. And so, God, we commit uh, this next season of our church to you. We pray for Ricky. We pray for the folks that he's loving and leading and guiding and guarding, uh, that they would be, Father, a part of our church and an expression of your kingdom in this community. So, Father, whatever uh, blind spot we might have, would you reveal it to us? And would you give us wisdom and courage to address it? Thank you, God, for moving in our midst. (laughs) Great thing. You, our sovereign God and King, would love us so much to involve us in your plans. So God, we pray for those who are not yet even a part of your kingdom or your church, that because of this, they would enter into your presence and into your people. Father, for those who are already, who will go and be a part of what Ricky is leading, we pray for them as well that they will have uh, energy tirelessly to follow your leading because you, God, are worth it. And so we commit these plans to you. And we pray these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are going to continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John and to chapter 8. While you're flipping there, I want to just ask if you've ever found yourself in a situation where where you simply didn't know what to do i know i have i call it ministry Where the vast majority of the time i look around i'm like hey uh where are the grown-ups somebody tell me what to do this is a hard thing i don't know what to do and i find myself oftentimes kind of paralyzed just sort of stuck, not knowing what to do, not wanting to get hurt, not wanting to make it worse, not wanting to make a fool of myself. And so I just sort of get stuck. I wonder if you've ever had a situation where not knowing what to do just sort of froze you and you sort of felt like you were in the dark. Well, I can remember vividly when this happened in a very real sense. I was maybe four or five years old. My big brother was maybe seven or eight years old. And my parents were going on a church retreat, which I figured out later was just a way to escape me. All right, I'm okay with that. They were going on a church retreat up into Red River, New Mexico. And so they left my brother and I with some friends, uh, Jack and Blanche McCauley, sweet, sweet people. We'd never been to their house before. They lived way out in the country, which I know sounds redundant when I'm talking about the Texas Panhandle. Nonetheless, they were not in the urban sprawl of Borger, Texas. They were out in the middle of nowhere. And it was our first night to stay with the Macaulays. I didn't know the house. was completely unfamiliar. I'm four or five years old, and I'm remembering now that the Macaulays actually had two guest bedrooms, but we didn't get either of them. Uh, we, we stayed in one of the guest rooms, but we had to sleep on little pallets on the floor. Like, what's up with that, Macaulay's? But anyway, not that I'm still bitter, but I remember in the very wee hours of the morning, very dark, very late at night, my brother, bad planner that he is, it's probably one or two in the morning, he has to go to the bathroom. Ah, And so he says what all big brothers do, hey, I gotta go to the bathroom. And then, as now, I wonder why I should care. And yet... He gets up, he goes to the door, he opens the door, walks inside, and he goes to the bathroom. Only then did he recognize that was actually Jack McCauley's closet. I recognized what's happened, and I'm like, oh, Steve, you're going to get in so much trouble. And he said what all big brothers say, if you say anything, I'll kill you. I did what all little brothers do. I ran like I stole something. I was gonna go and tell the Macaulay's of this awful thing that had happened, but I hear him coming after me behind me and I'm scared and I turned right, I turned left, I turned left again, that was a mistake. I heard the door close behind me, I'm in the garage. And the door behind me locks. And now it is blacker than the ace of spades. I can't even see my own thoughts. It is just and it's cold and I'm stuck and I can't get back inside. I'm in darkness. And I start to try to move around because I have this thought, if I can just get to the light, I will at least see where I am and I won't get hurt. I don't know why Jack McCauley did this, but apparently he stored all of his galvanized pipe laying at an angle up against the wall, like right there. And so I, of course, walk into it. It all falls on me. I get cut. I get hurt. I'm screaming. I'm terrified. Metal clanging. Cats are going. Raccoons are clawing at my face. I'm not real sure what's happening. But I'm terrified now. I can't move. I can't see what's happening. I'm stuck. And I finally, finally... Well, the story turns out okay. Because the door opened and Blanche McCauley turned on the light. She rescued me. And as soon as the light came on i was able to see what was around me i was able to avoid the things that were going to hurt me i was able to make some decisions i was able to see accurately and then choose my steps accordingly now maybe some of you have had experiences like that throughout your everyday normal day life by the way no one ever told jack mccauley about his shoes he's with the lord now so sorry jack That was my brother not me I don't know if you've had sort of situations like that in your marriage, in your health, in your finances, in your job, whatever's going on, but probably all of us have been moments like that where we get that old feeling and I feel like I'm in the Macaulay's garage. Like, I don't know what to do and if I do something wrong, it's going to hurt people, it's going to hurt me, it's going to make things worse. I need, I need light because I feel like I'm in darkness. Well, praise be to God. We don't just have a helper and a guide. We have a king who is good, who cares for us. We have a champion who is willing to die and we have a big brother who doesn't go in other people's shoes, a big brother who is proud of us, who loves us, who goes before us. And this king and champion and big brother also happens to be God. And that's our big idea for the morning from John chapter 8. It goes like this. Jesus is God. It is the most simple three-word big idea and yet it is the scream and shout of the entire New Testament. Jesus is God. And this passage this morning is going to fold that out, hopefully, very repeatedly and very clearly. Now, we are in the Gospel of John, and John's entire theme and thrust for this book is that you would believe, so that you will believe that Jesus is God. He will use the word believe or belief 92 times in this Gospel. Hoping, begging, praying, pleading that people will read this and they will step out of paralyzing darkness into life-giving light. So we're going to read this passage, John chapter 8. I will begin reading in verse 1. Now, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, the observant amongst you will notice either you've got an asterisk or you've got a footnote or you've got a double bracket. Some of you might have highlighted this out with a black sharpie. Don't do that. That's not good. But this is a questionable passage that I will read, and then we'll sort of deal with it. John chapter 8, beginning actually in verse 53. Following what happens in John chapter 7, they each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you'll recall, last week we finished John chapter 7. John chapters 7 through 10 is really kind of like the longest chapter in your New Testament. Everything that happens in John chapter 7 through 10 is one primary setting. Like the scenery doesn't change, it all happens essentially at Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So John chapter 7 has just concluded the story of Jesus appearing at the Feast of Tabernacles, declaring Himself to be the water of life, the bringer of the Spirit. And now we have John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, that's out to the east, down the Kidron Valley, up on the mountain. Early in the morning He came again to the temple. All the people came to Him, and He sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now clearly, without venturing off into any yellow words, adultery is a two-person sport. And yet they only brought in this story the woman. So this is clearly a setup trying to force Jesus' hand. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Either you break Moses' law and we stone you too, or you tell us to stone this woman and the Romans will get you. We've got him. What's he going to do? Verse 6, This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Oh, what a frequently quoted verse that is in our day and age. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is God's word? Probably not. This is almost certainly not supposed to be in our Bibles. And so this is a great opportunity. We as pastors don't get many of these chances, but this is one of those opportunities where I get to talk about one of the aspects of biblical theology called text criticism. Ooh, it's as exciting as it sounds. Text criticism, where you just point at your Bible and you say, you're a disappointment to me. You're bad in school. You have bad posture. No, it's not that kind of criticism. It's where we talk about the text and we say, hey, there are some issues with the text that we call our Bible. And left unaddressed, this sort of thing can cause the faith of some to be shaky. And so we want to be as totally transparent as we can and say yes, there are some issues with some of the texts of our Bible. Our Bible is absolutely trustworthy and the evidence to that is absolutely overwhelming, more than any other document in human history And so this section of text has brought up a whole lot of questions. Now, I will say this. This story, almost every scholar agrees, almost probably certainly happened. But it's also probably certainly not recorded by John in his gospel, at least not here. So just to sort of geek out and Greek out for one quick moment, I want to give you six reasons why this story is almost certainly not supposed to be here in the gospel of John. Number one. This story does not appear in any of our manuscripts in John's Gospel until the 5th century, that is the 400s. We have thousands of manuscripts, thousands from earlier than then, and none of them include this story in John's Gospel. None of them. So that's a pretty good indicator. Number two, all of the early church fathers and theologians omit this passage in commentating on John and pass directly from chapter 7, verse 52 to chapter 8, verse 12. Number three, the narrative of the text flows perfectly if you go from chapter 7, verse 52 to chapter 8, verse 12. It's a perfect, seamless connection there. Number four, no Eastern church fathers, that is the church of the the Eastern Roman Empire, none of them cite this passage before the 12th century when commentating on the Gospel of John. It doesn't exist anywhere ever in the eastern half of the Roman Empire until the 1100s. That's significant. Number five, When this narrative does begin to appear in some manuscripts, it shows up in three other places than here, even including the Gospel of Luke. Number six, its style and its vocabulary, its language, its syntax, is completely unlike anything else that John has ever written in either of his Gospels, his Epistles, or the Book of Revelation. So... What's the big deal? Why am I on a Sunday morning making a deal about text criticism? Because, yes, there are some minor, tiny variations in some of the manuscripts, the thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts that we have for the Old and New Testaments. But not a single one of those variances in any way affects our doctrine. That is what we believe on, what we stand on, in any way whatsoever No other document from antiquity is even a fraction as reliable as your Bible. And so, as has been attested for millennia, the words of the book that you hold in your hand, and hopefully are reading, are in fact the very words of God. And so what about this story itself? What should we do with it? What are we supposed to do with the story of Jesus and the adulterous woman? Well, again, I want to say this story almost certainly happened. Just about everybody agrees with that. And so there is... One primary, incredibly important point that this story raises, and it's really not about the adulterous woman at all. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time unpacking the passage and detailing all the nuances that happened with the adulterers that were discovered, because yes, there was two, nor am I going to make the connection that, oh, this happens at the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus is writing in the dirt. He's probably rewriting the law, as was one of the customs at the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe. We're not told. We're not sure. The point is, this is probably not supposed to be in the Bible, so I don't know what Jesus was writing i'm not going to do all that instead since i have a lot more of john chapter 8 to cover i'm just going to hit one big point this one point has to do with what jesus says about this incident and it goes like this jesus exalts himself above the law of moses that's what this story is about it's not about an adulterous woman and her gritting her teeth and trying not to sin again The whole point of this story, which is consistent with the rest of our Bible, by the way, is that Jesus exalts himself above the law of Moses. That means that righteousness is now founded on grace and not on doing stuff. Because Jesus has done all of the stuff that people couldn't do, and he gifts it to people freely with no strings attached. Really the core of this whole story is that nobody could keep the law, including the self-righteous Pharisees who were bringing accusation. And even the way that they bring these accusations were revealing their sin nature. Jesus' concluding remark to the woman of neither do I I condemn you, so go and sin no more. He does not say, I don't condemn you, so go and don't sin anymore so that you don't get stoned because getting stoned hurts and then you die and that really is no fun at all. He doesn't say that know Jesus' concluding remarks are amazing. He says, don't commit adultery because you have met God and He is good and you love Him and He loves you. He's a person and I am Him. He's better than the rule book. He's better than the code of conduct. Jesus exalts Himself above the law of Moses. That message is consistent with the whole of Scripture and so I am comfortable discussing this passage in our series on John as the pastor of a Bible church even though it's probably not supposed to be in our Bible because there is truth therein. It's not about not sinning so that you can avoid consequence. That's law. That's defeat that never works ever in the history of humankind. Good luck with that. It is about, oh, he's a person. And he's good. And he loves me. And I love him. And what he says is good for me, I want to follow him. That's the message of John 8, 1-11. to So then, we'll now transition to John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, now remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem, in the temple courts, at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the 4th of July and New Year's and everything all rolled into one. Tabernacles is the biggest rejoicing party. Jesus has already told them a lot of things about himself. I am the manna from heaven. I am the bread of heaven. I am the provision of God. I am the water of life that flows. I am the river maker who will well up in you and you will have the spirit of God in you. All of these things. And Jesus is going to continue to mix his metaphors because, you know, sovereign God can do that. He's going to use what's on hand to instruct them vividly. He says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I love this passage. I am the light of the world. Why does Jesus say this here and now? Because it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And we'll find out later he is standing in what's called the treasury. This is the court of women. Let me say very clearly, it is the court of Jewish women. Still only accessible and available to Jews. In this case, the treasury is in the court of women. And at tabernacles, they would take all of the robes of all of the priests from the entire previous year of service. All of the priestly robes, and they would shred them up, and they would soak these little strips in olive oil. And then they would wrap these strips of priestly robes soaked in olive oil as the finished work of the priest, and they would lift it up on these enormous golden candelabras, these lampstands, and they would light them. And you could see these lights from all over Jerusalem. The lampstands were huge. The temple mount is elevated. It was available and visible by anybody who was in Jerusalem. That's where the light is. That's how I get close to God. That's how I approach. That directs my steps. That shows me where to go. And Jesus says, oh, <laughs> I'm the light of the world. You, you think it's this? I am the priest who introduces you and intercedes from God to you and vice versa. It's me. What does light do? Light brings illumination. Light brings clarity. Light brings wisdom. Light brings courage as opposed to darkness. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I come to obliterate the darkness. Why did the Jews do this with the priestly robes, lighting them on fire on these candles? Because they were there to commemorate the goodness and the direction leadership of God. In the Exodus, as the children of Israel come out of Egypt, God leads them by a pillar of fire and a cloud by day. It is God leading them, giving them direction, clarity, courage, vision. This is why they celebrate this. And Jesus goes, oh, actually, all of that in the Old Testament that you're commemorating here, it's me. This is what I do for a human soul. It's me. I go before you. I lead you. I give you direction. I give you clarity. I give you wisdom. I give you courage. And all who follow me, follow me does not mean you just tag along and go, Jesus, mate, he's pretty cool. No, it is appropriating his life so that we have light, which is life. That's what it means to follow him, to place all of your weight on him and him alone, trusting not at all in anything that you can bring to the table, except your own sin. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now what's really interesting is that I've even titled this sermon, Light. Because it's so profound to me. He is the one that gives it and it is found no place else. Jesus says, you want illumination and wisdom and understanding and direction and courage? It only comes through me. I am the light of the world. And I've titled the sermon, Light. But Jesus will not mention light again in this entire passage. Why? Why? Because from verses 13 through 29, he's going to get detoured. Or is he? The Pharisees and the leaders and the scribes and the elders are going to come to him and they're going to try and trap him. They're going to try to to end around him and get him stuck in a word game. And Jesus in his sovereignty, I wouldn't want to leave my preaching either, by the way. Jesus in his sovereignty tolerates the detour. Now let me just say, If I'm Jesus and a bunch of people interrupt me when I say I'm the light of the world and they go, well, who says? I just go, one of a billion reasons I'm not Jesus. But Jesus does not do that. In his sovereignty, he takes this attempted detour and he uses it for his glory to demonstrate His deity, to detail His divinity. He will take their attempt at detour and He will use it for His own declarative purposes because that's what a sovereign God does. He allows their question and He actually uses it against them. So we'll pick up here in chapter 8, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to Him, You are bearing witness about Yourself. Your testimony is not true. These guys are direct. They're calling him a liar. Why are they doing this? Because they're still angry about what happened way back in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Brings him out of death into life, out of darkness into light. And then Jesus says something pretty amazing in John chapter 5, verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And then Jesus says in chapter 7, I bear witness to myself. And they go, gotcha! You're contradicting yourself. And Jesus says, no, I'm not. You're not listening because you're in darkness. You don't understand. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. See, my witness is actually confirmed by my Father because I know Him because I've been there. And He is the one who sent me. I am here from Him. I am here for Him. And I will return To him, because I know him. You know neither. You don't know him. You don't know me. You don't know where I'm going. You think you do because of all the things that you do, but you don't. It's a pretty remarkable response that Jesus gives them. Verse 15. he says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Well, of course Jesus judges people because he is the judge. Ah, but in context, what he means is something very specific. The Pharisees were masters at judging people according to the flesh. That is, their appearances. How much education did they have? How many resources did they have? What tribe were they from? What clan were they from? What role did they have in service? How long had they studied under which rabbi? They judged everything according to a scorecard. And Jesus says, I don't judge anybody that way. Because I have found everybody guilty. But I declare those who believe righteous by grace. That's what it means to be justified. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, he says in verse 16, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. I know this doesn't sound like a claim to deity, but it is. In this passage alone, there are seven claims to deity. Seven. It may not sound like it to us. We're 21st century East Texans. We want Jesus to say, hey, y'all, guess what? I'm God. Y'all get in a truck. He doesn't say that. He says, I and the Father judge, because I am from there. It is the clearest way a Jew could hear him saying, I am God, because I and the Father of the same essence. Whatever I judge, he's already judged it. Whatever he judges, it's because I've already judged it. We are of the same essence, we're from the same place, I'm God. Now, it might be a little bit hard for us to internalize, but Jesus is telling them directly, I am the God you claim to know and love and serve, and you don't. And he'll make that even clearer here in just a moment. Verse 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Well, I have two people, actually three. But he says, I am the only one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. It's not just me. I am God and I am from the Father because the Father and I are one. And then he's going to say something that is so marvelous, so terrifyingly penetrating that I do not want you to miss chapter 8 verse 19 they said to him therefore where is your father Jesus answered you know neither me nor my father if you knew me you would know my father also this is one of the most direct rebukes Jesus will ever give you claim to know and love and serve God by all of the stuff that you do the keeping of the law, the eating the certain diet, the dressing a certain way, the not cutting of the forelocks, locks, the, all of the stuff, the killing of the animals, the lighting of the... You claim to know, but you do not know Him at all. Jesus says the Father and I are so unified, we are so much of the same essence, that if you were to see me walking towards you, you should recognize God. And the only reason you don't recognize me as, as God is because you don't know God. Brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, if you're here and you have this mindset of I really likes me some God, I love that idea. I have no use for Jesus. Let me just tell you what an impossibility that is according to Jesus and God. Jesus and God are such of the same essence that to see Jesus, you see God. Jesus will say this over and over again. So if you reject Jesus, you are rejecting God. If you claim to really know and love and serve God, if you were to see Jesus, you would say, yeah, it's him. He's a person. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. He is the He is the light of God. He is God. This is Jesus' claim. Well, in verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury, again in the court of Jewish women, and even that is about to change. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is an astonishing thing. He is in Jerusalem on Temple Mount in the treasury at the Feast of Tabernacles. And he says, you don't know God. You don't love God. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus, meek and mild and timid and bashful. Oh no, you couldn't get more courageous than this. This is bursting into St. Peter's in the Vatican at Christmas Mass and going, hey, with the funny hats, none of you knows God. Now you might feel that way. I don't know how many of you would actually be willing to do that because there are these people called Swiss guards and they have sharp instruments. Jesus just tells the entire nation of Israel, all of the leadership, you don't know God, you don't love God, you're liars well that went over about as well as you can imagine verse 21 so bad translation i wish it was therefore in the greek it's a transition it's because of everything that happens in 12 through 20 verse 21 so therefore jesus responds to their rejection They will not have this man as God. No, he cannot be. He does not fit our expectation. If this man is in fact God, then we have to be accountable to him as such and that wrecks my whole world. Uh Uh-huh. And it saves it and it gives it purpose and direction and meaning and worth. And so, Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. This is how you influence people and make friends. You're going to die in your sin because I'm going away and you can't find me. Now, they simply could not understand. So the Jews said, well, he'd kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. See, sort of a fascinating thing. The great self-righteousness religions that are dependent on human works have always held that suicide is the unpardonable sin. Because if you do that last act, then you can't undo it with some sorts of works. And that is a great lie and error that is not biblical. Judaism and a lot of other self-righteousness-based religions teach that. It is great error. The only unpardonable sin is unbelief. But they thought, wait a minute, what do you mean you're going where we can't go? Are you going to kill yourself? Because then you'll be condemned in hell and we'll go to heaven. Is that what you're talking about, Jesus? Oh, he reverses it and turns it upside down. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going you cannot go. Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. Oh, you think you're going to heaven and then I'm going to hell? That's actually the other. You're from the pit of hell. This Jesus doesn't really know how to grow a church, does he? This is not how you want to lead your conversations to your visitors and guests. You're from below. I'm from above. But this is what he says. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sin. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. See, this is where... English! They're trying to help us out, these interpreters. They're actually supposed to be translating, but here they interpret. Unless you believe that I am, and in English we like to add he, so that we understand. No. Seven times Jesus claims that I am. I am. Now that may not sound as clear to us in our 21st century East Texan ears but the Jews absolutely understood what Jesus was saying. Unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins. Let me make sure you get the strength of what Jesus says. The direct nature that he says this with. In Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 Moses approaches God on Mount Sinai. There's a bush, it's on fire. Moses takes off his shoes and God says go to Egypt, release my people. Moses says, Hamana, Hamana, Hamana who should I say sent me? God says, I am. Yahweh. It is who I am. It is what I am. It's my name. Yahweh. And so for Jesus to stand in the temple and say, unless you believe that I am, unless you believe Yahweh, you will die in your sins. Friends, I can't put it any more clearly than that. Unless you believe that Jesus is Yahweh, the God of the cosmos, you die in your sins. I I didn't write it. I probably wouldn't have the courage to. I couldn't find my way out of a garage when I was five. This is what Jesus says. Verse 25. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the very beginning. My message has not wavered. I have not gone off topic. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But I, I don't have the time. But He, the Father who sent Me, is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from Him. They did not understand that He had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, Oh, He's just sealed it. You have rejected, and so now you will be complicit in confirming that I am. Your conspiratorial rejecting hearts will not just be ignorant, you are now complicit in confirming that I am and therefore you will die in your sins. Verse 28, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. It is not I am He. Then you will know that I am. When you have done this thing, you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. Why is He saying that? Because they are of the same essence. They're from the same place. They are God. Verse 29, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Because again, they are such unity, the Father and the Son. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is God's word. Our big idea for the morning is that Jesus is God. So from this passage, I just want to give three very brief summary implications. The first goes like this. Every life needs light to live. Every life needs light to live. I know, I know. I've seen National Geographic too. There's some freaky salamander in Japan, lives in a cave, has no eyes, stays in darkness. Good, good for you. Great, I get it. I'm not talking about salamanders. They have no sin nature. They are not in need of redemption. I'm talking about people. Every person... Every life needs light to live. The problem with our world, however, even more so in our day and age, all over the globe, is that people by nature are convinced that they can discover this light anywhere and any way they choose and on their own terms. But they cannot. This light, please hear me, I beg, I pray, I implore you, this light that Jesus offers, that God presents, is not discoverable. It is revealed by grace. It is not just discoverable on your terms when you want. This is why Jesus stepping in and saying that He is the light of the world is so significant. There is no other way to have true, lasting, understanding, peace, illumination, and wisdom in this world apart from knowing Jesus. Not about Him. Not fearing that He's going to be mad at you when you get it wrong. But knowing Him. Following Him. Appropriating His life. So I don't know where all of your struggles are in life, but I'm willing to bet that those things occupy a space of darkness, a little corner, a little crevice in your heart and in your mind. And so I encourage you, as the Spirit brings those things to mind, the little areas and corners of darkness, sin, struggle, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, whatever it is, that you will bring Jesus into that space and ask His light to shine in that space because that's belief. Now, speaking of belief, implication number two. Belief does not come from religion. I know that we all know that we all know that. Sort of. Let me put a very fine point on it because I've heard a great many, recently, a great many well-meaning, church-attending, Bible-reading, Jesus-loving, casserole-baking Christians say something like this well, you know, I mean, come on, the Orthodox Jews or, or, or devout Catholics or dedicated Eastern Orthodox, I mean, surely they're in, too, because, I mean, just, 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 just look how dedicated they are. Look how closely they follow the rules. Look how, look how much they mean it. I just want to tell you, that is sincere error. Belief does not come from any religion whatsoever. That is wrong. Any system of faith that focuses on what you have to do is an affront and an offense before a holy God who sent His Son to do the work. Listen, in all of human history, nobody has been more devout, more dedicated, more committed, more focused to obedience than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And he says they are from below, they are from hell, they are condemned, they die in their sin. So let me just say, behaviorism, moralism, religion is not the same thing as belief. By the way, every single other system of belief other than Christianity, operates under that basic construct. Now belief is about actually knowing the person of God and loving Him. It's actually being crazy about Him as if He was the greatest loving Father ever because He is! And that will change all of our behavior even though it might look very different to those who are merely being religious. I mean, when you pray, if you pray, are you mindlessly, mechanically saying some things in the right syntactical order? Or in your heart and your mind, are you allowing yourself to go, wait a minute? Oh my God. He's so good. He's so great. He loves me so much. He's never hosed me, not once ever, although I continue to do it to him. He's so cool. He thinks what I wish I would think. He says what I wish I would say. He does what I wish I would do. I love that God. And then He became flesh to say, I love Him. Now see, that changes my behavior, my sin management program, a thousand percent. Belief, number three, comes from the Word of God. Now I know you're thinking, well, you've got to say that. You're a Bible church pastor. No, 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 hear me. Belief comes from the Word of God. At the end of our passage in chapter 30, we're told that many believed in what he said. Please notice, Jesus is doing no miraculous signs nor wonders here, and these people believe. I still hear it today. People say, well, if Jesus would just do this or that miraculous sign or wonder, I would believe. Newsflash, no you wouldn't. Every instance in Scripture where someone sees a miraculous sign and wonder, they fade, they take off. It never sticks. It never lasts. Belief comes from the Word of God. We don't just study God's Word in here because it's our culture or our tradition or because it's our church's middle name. We study God's Word because it is the power of God unto salvation. And for those of us who are believers already, it is a constant and consistent reminder and encouragement to our souls which are prone to wander and prone to leave the God we love. Belief comes from the Word of God. Feed on it. And it will tell you in both Testaments that Jesus is God. And just to give you a quick illustration in closing as to the centrality and the criticality of the Word of God, I was thinking and preparing and praying this week, and the story of Martin Luther came to mind yet again. Martin Luther was the most religiously adept Catholic monk in all of Germany. He was fastidious. He would fast for days and days. He would whip himself. He would deprive himself. He would deny himself. It is said that when Martin Luther showed up for confession, quite literally, the priest in the box would go running because he knew he would be there for hours and hours. Martin Luther would get off everything he could from his chest, all the things that he had thought and done and said, and then he would go into the things that he was capable of thinking or saying or doing and that he could have imagined he might do. And finally, one priest said, and Martin Luther records this in his journal, told him, oh, Martin, just trust God and go home already. Later in his life, Luther suffered immensely from all sorts of uh, intestinal and, uh, well, uh, abdominal issues because he had fasted so much he had damaged his his, uh, stomach lining and such. Nobody was more behavioristic. Nobody was more uh, cautious. He wrote in his journal, Do I love God? Most certainly not. I hate Him. For this religion he has imposed is such a burden. It is exhausted, exhausting. I am maddened. He wrote, Every time I sweep the house, wind blows in fresh dirt. I am beaten. And finally, to keep him from going absolutely insane and shooting up a post office or something, the church stepped in. Said, Here's what we're gonna do: we're gonna send you to the seminary in Wittenberg and you're gonna teach students. And he said, Teach? I'm not worthy to do anything. I said, You're gonna go to teach. And you're going to teach students. And he said, well, what am I going to teach? They said, you're going to teach Psalms and you're going to teach Romans. And he said, the Bible? Well, I've never read the Bible. I've read all of the works, all of the philosophies, all of the Catholic fathers, but I've not read the Bible. But Luther knew this at least. The secret to any good teaching is merely being 15 minutes ahead of your students. Uh Those of you who are teachers, you're like, "Uh uh-huh. You just got to be about 15 minutes ahead. And so Luther sat down, and he started reading the book of Romans for the very first time. And he read in chapter 1 that all men stand condemned because of their idolatry. He went, ugh, that sounds like me. And then he read chapter 2 that the Jews stand condemned because they could not keep the law. And he said, that's right. And then he read chapter 3 that all fall short of the glory of God. And he said, ugh, that's me, and I know but he was deathly afraid of hell. And so he writes that he he poured feverishly and he could not wait to turn the page to get to chapter four. And in chapter four, the apostle Paul wrote, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That Abraham was justified by faith. Now to you and me sitting here hearing that, we go, yeah, well, of course, we've all heard that a gajillion times. Not Luther. It rocked his world everything for him clicked it said in paul said in chapter 4 for the gospel for in the gospel sorry the righteousness of god is revealed not discoverable for in the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed that blew his mind luther said i stared and blanked or blinked at the page using my favorite expression as a calf at a new gate I just stared blinking at the page, not able to believe what I was reading. The gospel? Grace? You don't earn it. God gives it to you. He shows it to you. The righteous live by faith, by trusting Christ and what he has done. We've heard it so much that we're sort of like, yeah, 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 yeah. But this shattered Luther's world, and perhaps it needs to shatter ours all over again. Our system of faith is not about what we must do or how we must live or how we're supposed to vote or how we're supposed to appear. It's all about what Jesus has done for us already. So may, just like Luther, we get wrecked all over again by the glory of the gospel. And may we admit that we don't just need Blanche McCauley to flip on the light. We need Jesus to flood every corner and crevice of our lives because He is God. He is the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the morning, thank You for this passage, thank You for the opportunity to gather together as Your people, by Your Spirit and study Your Word. I do pray, God, if there's someone here this morning who does not know You, that You will move irresistibly by grace and reveal the truth of the Gospel. You will free someone, perhaps someones, from trying to slug it out and earn Your favor. That they will follow You. They will seek your light. They will put all of their weight and stand solely and squarely on what your son Jesus has done. And because you are good and because you are a person that we can know, may we continue ever increasingly to give over our lives to you. We would sin no longer. Father, I pray that you will continue to move in our midst. We thank you for Bethel. We thank you for the work that you are doing and what you will do. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me ask you to stand for word of benediction and we'll be dismissed. Thanks again so much for being here. I want to remind you, the next three Sundays, our new church members from Hope will be with us for the next three uh, Sundays. I want to remind you, uh, baptism and discover Bethel, please sign up for that. And all the ladies' events that are going on, you can sign up for those as well. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face and His light to shine upon you and may you reflect it. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week.